You're listening to episode number four of the Keto Diet Podcast. Hey, I'm Leanne from healthfulpursuit.com, and this is the Keto Diet Podcast, where we're busting through the restrictive mentality of a traditional ketogenic diet to uncover the life you crave. What's keto? Keto is a low-carb, high-fat diet where we're switching from a sugar-burning state to becoming fat-burning machines. The keto diet has helped me with fertility, has ended my constant weight struggles, blood sugar regularities, imbalanced moods, and so, so much more. I want to share this magic with you using a realistic approach to this powerful diet. No restriction, new ways of looking at things, and positive support awaits. Let's get this party started. Hey guys, happy Sunday. Already October 23rd. Can you believe it? The awesome thing this week that I've been making probably for two months, and I actually shared it on my Instagram stories. If you don't already follow me on Instagram, you must because I share a lot of stories on there about things that I make. Uh, You can find me at Healthful Pursuit. And I shared this recipe with you guys on there. Basically, it's a fat bomb that takes just seconds to put together. And I've been eating it probably every day for at least two months. Um, What you do is you take a bit of coconut butter. So that's like ground up coconut and you put it in a bowl and you add some melted coconut oil and you mix it together. And then you add a scoop of cacao powder and a scoop of collagen, mix it around, put it in a silicone tray or however you make your fat bombs and put it in the freezer for like five minutes. And I like to put it in a long silicone tray, like one of those ones that you would bake with and it makes bark and it's so good. And if you need a little bit of sweetness, you can add two, maybe three drops of stevia. I like it plain, But not only does it give me fat throughout the day, sometimes I even have it for breakfast so I don't have to like make food, but it also gives you collagen and you guys know how much I love vital proteins collagen. So it's just a really great way to add collagen in a new way and it's like a treat. So in today's episode, we are chatting about the calories in calories out approach to weight loss and totally debunking it. Very excited to share this information with you and get a conversation going, Uh, steps to overcoming insulin resistance and fasting for weight loss and health management. The show notes for today's episode can be found at healthfulpursuit.com forward slash podcast forward slash E4. And let's hear from one of our awesome partners before we get started. Vital Proteins is a partner of the Keto Diet Podcast, and we all know how much I'm obsessed with them. Why? Because their beef gelatin and collagen peptides are so versatile, encourage healing, and are very easy to incorporate. If you have digestive imbalances, are wanting to grow strong hair or nails, or are looking for a health-promoting protein powder, look no further than Vital Proteins. Their beef gelatin is great added to soups, stews, and casseroles, and their collagen peptides can be used just like you would use protein powder. Now that the weather is changing, I like to add a couple of scoops of gelatin to my casseroles, stews, and my personal favorite beef stroganoff. Receive 10% off plus free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code VPHP10 at checkout at vitalproteins.com. 
Okay, so I do have an announcement today. Kevin and I have been super busy making a keto shop that's filled with a bunch of merchandise based on all the little slogans and things that I've said in the past or like high fat motivational items. It is called ketodietgoods.com and it includes t-shirts, racer tees, sweaters. We're going to be adding tote bags here pretty soon and probably some hats. If you guys checked out Keto Diet Goods when I lightly announced it on Instagram, there were a bunch of healthful pursuit URLs at the bottom. And a lot of people said, like, I don't want to pay to wear your URL on my body, which fair enough. So we removed all of that. They're really cute. Kevin did an amazing, Kevin's my husband. He did an amazing job on putting the shop together and putting together all of the designs for the t-shirts. If anything, just go to the shop to check it out. Um, You can go to ketodietgoods.com. I'll include a link in the show notes. Very excited to share this with you guys. It's been a labor of love for a really long time and it's finally happening. I've been promising t-shirts and swag and merchandise for quite a long time. Those collections that are on the front page are going to change constantly. So if you have an idea for a collection, we have a couple of suggestions already. You can email info at ketodietpodcast.com and let me know what do you want to see on a t-shirt. We'll be swapping out the collections every couple of weeks slash months depending on what people like and what they're asking for so I'm very excited about that And then if you have an idea for a podcast episode, we've been getting lots of ideas. And in fact, today's guest is one of those ideas. You can reach me at info at ketodietpodcast.com. And if you want to submit praise over and above the review that you've already submitted, haven't you, for the podcast? You have, right? Um, You can also email me there. And I am going to be reading one of the reviews. And it comes from Bright Skies and Sunshine. Wow, I like that name. Uh, Leanne has been a thought leader in the keto space for quite some time. Her podcast is informative and entertaining with actionable tips. Leanne makes even the most complex concepts easy to understand, helping me to truly understand keto and the overwhelming health benefits of a ketogenic diet. It is incredible how much knowledge Leanne has and shares with the community. Thank you. Well, thanks for listening. That's so great. And you also called me entertaining. So that's fabulous. (laughs) If you would like to leave a review and support my show, you can head on over to healthfulpursuit.com forward slash review, and you'll be directed to a page where you can submit your review. Just click on reviews and write a review. Give me five stars, hopefully, and write something nice. Or you can go to your favorite podcast app and search for the keto diet podcast and submit your review there. So today we have on the show Dr. Jason Fung. He earned his medical degree at the University of Toronto, where he also completed his internal medicine residency before heading to the University of California, Los Angeles for his fellowship in nephrology. He currently practices as a kidney specialist in Toronto. He is the chief of the Department of Medicine at Scarborough General Hospital. In addition to clinical medicine, he is also on the board of directors of Low Carb Diabetes Association and the scientific editor of the Journal of Insulin Resistance. During the course of treating thousands of patients, it became clear to Dr. Fung that the epidemic of type 2 diabetes and obesity was getting worse. The prevailing dietary recommendations to reduce dietary fat 
and calories were clearly ineffective. He founded the Intensive Dietary Management Program to provide a unique treatment focus for type 2 diabetes and obesity rather than focusing on medications. This clinic focuses on dietary changes that are simple yet effective. In March 2016, Greystone Books published Dr. Fung's first book, The Obesity Code, which explores the underlying hormonal imbalance that leads to obesity and recommends effective strategies that address root causes of weight gain. His second book, The Complete Guide to Fasting, will be published in October 18th, 2016. So I've wanted to have a conversation with Jason since forever, so I'm so thrilled that he came on the show. And also he's a fellow Canadian, so I feel like we had an instant bond. (laughs) What I loved about this episode is that we chatted about calorie counting and just how misguided of a tool it is for weight loss and how people use it. And oh, it's just a hot mess. So we talked about that, the ins and outs of insulin regulation why some of us have issues with fasting, especially as women. And we talked about the dawn phenomenon and the difference between fasting and water only fasts and so much more. So personally, I kind of wanted to set the stage with the fasting thing, because if you guys have been following me for a while, you know that I don't fast all of the time. I fast when I need to, but I find that I feel better personally, hormonally, when I do a 1410 approach most days. We're going to talk about what that means in the episode. So I leave the 16, 8 or the 20 to 4 when I'm traveling or I'm in meetings all day. But I personally know that my body doesn't respond well to long periods of fasting. I don't personally advocate it because I have a history of an eating disorder. And for me personally, I find that it's quite triggering and can be triggering for people that have had eating disorders. So I really hope you love this episode. I hope it gives you the answers that you were looking for. I paneled the Healthful Pursuit community in my private Facebook group, which you can gain access to when you purchase any of my keto programs. You guys came up with a bunch of awesome questions and I got through all of them. So let's get to it. Hey, Jason, how are you doing today? Very good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on the show. Uh, So many of the Keto Diet Podcast listeners love your work. So they've submitted so many questions for you. So we'll try to get through everything. For those listening who maybe aren't familiar with your work, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm a uh, kidney specialist. I trained in Toronto to do my uh, medicine and internal medicine. And then I went to Los Angeles to do two years of uh, nephrology, which is kidney specialty. Then I came back to Toronto and I've been practicing there for uh, about 15 years now. And it's, it's interesting. Some people always ask how I got into kind of nutrition and so on, thinking that it's really just a kind of uh, side uh, of what I do. But it's actually mm-hmm. not. It's actually the heart of what I do. Because uh, if you look at the most common cause of kidney disease, by far and away, it's type 2 diabetes. What's interesting about type 2 diabetes is that everybody tries to convince you that it's really just some chronic and progressive disease, but it's really nothing of the kind. It's completely reversible. And everybody knows this, of course, because if you have a friend or a parent, for example, who has type 2 diabetes and then they lose 50 pounds, very often or the type 2 diabetes simply disappears. So clearly it's not a progressive disease. We are focused on giving lots of drugs for these patients, but 
obviously they weren't getting better. Otherwise, I wouldn't be dealing with the kidney mm -hmm. failure down the road. So from a kidney failure, I, ha I was looking at type 2 diabetes, and then it became obvious that you really have to look at obesity and weight loss if you're really going to make a difference to reverse this sort of epidemic. And what I found eventually was that what we thought about obesity and weight gain was pretty much completely incorrect. All this focus on calories in, calories out, and caloric restriction, and that sort of thing, it was pretty much incorrect. And that's what led me to, uh, to really looking at what causes weight gain. And it's nothing to do with calories. It's really a hormonal imbalance that we have to correct because it's the hormones which tell our body how much calories to burn and how many to store as fat, right? And the problem is the distribution. We, we, we switch too many towards storing fat, and the question is why. And it comes down mainly, not only, but mainly to the hormone insulin. And that's kind of where I started. And from there, looking at low-carbohydrate diets, ketogenic diets. And it's interesting because when I started with ketogenic and low-carbohydrate diets, it works, but most people, it didn't didn't follow it very well. So in the end, it was quite unsuccessful. And the problem was that my patients were mostly older. They're 65 plus. A lot of them didn't speak English. A lot of them don't go on the computer. They're not that interested in finding out what ketogenic diets are. So they didn't really understand what it was that we were trying to ask them to do. So we had to come up with something different that would be more successful because in the end you have to treat these patients and what we came up with was the point is not to be ketogenic the point is to make them lose weight and get rid of the diabetes so they don't have kidney disease so we used a lot of intermittent fasting which is a very old technique that for some reason and now I think about it, I just don't understand why everybody's essentially abandoned that and so we've used that much more in our clinics to get rid of these type 2 diabetes but also low carbohydrate diets ketogenic diets and all of that thing and all of them are focused really on lowering insulin which is the main hormonal driver of obesity so there are some people who it's not the main issue but for the majority of people that's it and if you address that kind of underlying hormonal balance then they lose weight and their diabetes goes away and then I don't have to worry about kidney disease <laughs> mm -hmm, totally and you and you mentioned the calories in calories out theory and you're saying you know that concept doesn't work. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, the theory for people that maybe don't know? Sure. So it seems like it should work, right? Mm. So it's it, but it doesn't because there's a assumption underlying the calories in calories out theory that is not true. That is, if you reduce your calories in, you assume that your calories out stays stable and therefore you lose weight. So that's assuming, for example, if you start off eating 2,000 calories and burning 2,000 calories, that as you lower your caloric intake to 1,500 calories, that you will continue to burn 2,000 calories. That's actually not true at all. We have actually known this for close to 100 years that that's not true. Because what happens when you reduce your calories to 1,500 is that your body simply reduces its energy expenditure by, by the same amount. So you drop to 1,500 calories out. So now you're taking in 1,500 and burning 1,500. So you're eating less, but your body is burning less as well. So you're not losing weight. And that's what eventually causes that weight plateau. The body actually drops it a little further just in case, right? So it drops it down maybe to 1,400. And now even though you're eating 1,500 calories, 
you're at a plus 100 difference and therefore the weight starts to come back up. But it's not because you fell off your diet. It's because that's the body's natural response. And if you think about it, it's because the body just doesn't want to die, right? Mm, yeah. If you if you stayed burning 2,000 calories and went to 1,500, you'd lose a pound a day until all your muscles got burned and you'd be skeletal and emaciated and die. Now, the body doesn't want to do that. The problem with it is if you think about you know, what happens to the body, it just ramps its energy expenditure down. So you're feeling really tired, you're feeling really cold, but you're not losing weight. And that's exactly what happens when people go on a diet. If you think about it, for example, of, as a salary, so suppose you earn $100,000 a year and you spend $100,000 a year. What happens when your salary goes down to 50000 you don't continue to spend 100000 otherwise you go into debt and then you go to jail. <laughs> so you quickly reduce your expenditures down by the same amount because you're not stupid, right? You don't want to go to jail. And the body is the same, right? Why do we assume that the body is so stupid, right? It doesn't even make any sense to begin with. So the, the, the main premise that your energy expenditure is stable is completely false. So then you can go back into the literature and you can look back as far back as 1917, right? So close to 100 years ago, they did studies where they put people on these semi-starvation diets. So they dropped their calories by about a third and, what ha and then measured their energy expenditure. And their energy expenditure dropped by about a third. If you go back to Ansel Key's famous starvation studies, again, they were not starvation studies. They were caloric reduction studies. So they dropped the calories by about 40%, then measured their energy expenditure, and it dropped by 40%. And this is why these caloric reduction diets, I call it caloric reduction as primary, because that's what we tell people to do, right? Eat less, portion control. That's your primary goal is to eat less doesn't work and we know it because when you do studies so again there's a there's a very large study called the women's health initiative which was not primarily a weight loss study but they reduced their calories by about 360 calories per day and over seven years they didn't even lose a single pound of weight which is ridiculous so what it tells you is that your body has also reduced its expenditure by the same amount so it's guaranteed to fail and if you look at everybody who's ever tried a caloric reduction diet, you know they fail, right? Everybody, every single one of us practically has done it, and it's always failed. If you look at studies of weight loss in the general population, so you look at population records, the failure rate of these sort of standard treatments is roughly 99%. So if we're giving advice that has a 99% failure rate, why do we blame the people when they fail to lose weight, right? It's very unfair, mm -hmm. right? What you're doing is you're blaming the patient. You're blaming the victim because here they are, the victim of this really bad advice to cut your calories, reduce your portions, eat six times a day, but eat less. They're the victims of this really bad advice, yet when they continue to gain weight or they don't lose weight, everybody turns around and points a finger directly at them and says, you're you're falling off the wagon, you're not following the diet, you're not working hard enough, right? It's very unfair. And one analogy that I heard is that, for example, two-thirds of Americans are obese or overweight. And this has all happened within almost a single generation. Mm -hmm. So imagine that you have a classroom of 30 children and one child fails. Well, you might blame the child. They didn't study enough. 
But if 20 out of the 30 children fails, you don't blame the children, you blame the teacher, right? And this is the problem. We're still blaming the children. We're still blaming the victims. All those people who are overweight and obese, we all turn around and point the finger at them. But what we should have done is point the finger to the advice that we had been given because it doesn't work. Everybody knows it doesn't work. We've known for a hundred years it doesn't work. We have study after study after study that proves it doesn't work. And yet when it doesn't work, we blame them. Yeah, right? it's a and totally that's the problem. <laughs> it, it's, it's madness. Problem. It is absolute madness. And this is the whole thing with calories, right? We do these calorie labels and this and that and pretend that it's all about calories. And everybody who does these calorie reduction things, they think they're evidence-based. I'm like, what evidence do you have that reducing calories actually makes you lose weight in the long term, like over years? Mm-hmm. And there's zero. There's absolutely none. These cal- caloric reduction as primary kind of diets, this paradigm, has not even been around for 50 years, right? Because nobody knew what a calorie was uh, in 1900, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody really cared about it. Nobody defined it. Now we obsess about calories. So we everybody knows what calories are. Everybody knows how many calories there are. We have calorie tracking apps. We have programs to track it. We measure BMR, all this stuff. And yet we're still more obese than ever before. So again... The reason is not that we all suddenly as a, as a society all simultaneously decided that we wanted to be fat or we would let ourselves go or we all became weak-willed. It's ridiculous. Obviously, it has to be something systemic. So you have to look at the advice that we're giving. So that's that's where it is, You know, this whole calorie thing. And that's what my first book, The Obesity Code, was really about, was really trying to understand what the causes of weight gain are. Because that's the most important thing. When you treat a disease... You have to understand what the root cause is because that's what you have to treat, right? So if you understand that an infection is due to bacteria, then you can give an antibiotic, right? Mm -hmm. Because you know the cause, you know how to treat it. If you take the disease of obesity and say it's all about calories, right? That's our paradigm. Calories, it's a disease of too many calories. Then you focus on cutting calories and it doesn't work at all. The Keto Diet Podcast is sponsored by Daily Yoga, an app that delivers 50 high-definition online yoga classes so that you can namaste in the comfort of your own home, in a hotel room, or anywhere really, with the option of professionally scheduled programs to reach your goals, whether they be overcoming insomnia, changing body composition, or calming anxiety, the multilingual classes, as well as various meditation courses distinguish Daily Yoga in the app space. After your workout, you're presented with stats of your workout, time worked, intensity, calorie burn, and so much more. Download the app by going to dailyyoga.com forward slash keto, access through the show notes, or type it in manually to your browser, and use the coupon code KETO, all in lowercase, no spaces, to unlock all of the programs and courses at once for free for seven days. Again, that's dailyyoga.com forward slash keto, and use the coupon code KETO, all lowercase, no spaces, to unlock all of the programs. So when we are cutting, like, let's just say, you know, I'm a 30 year old woman, I've been dieting for 12 years, I'm sitting at around, I don't know, 1000 1100 calories a day. Perhaps my hormones are all over the place. I'm not eating enough. 
how does one go from that diet mentality of calories in, calories out, and assuming, you know, I know for myself, restricting calories for so long caused me to have amenorrhea. How do they go from that state of barely any calories to eating enough calories and the worry that comes along with that of, oh my gosh, so you're saying I need to eat more? <laughs> yeah, you have to really get out of the, the whole calorie um, mindset because the, the body just doesn't care about calories. The body only cares about hormones because it's hormones that tell our body what to do. So if we have thyroid hormone, it tells our heart to bump, pump a little faster or blood pressure to go a little high. We don't control these things and neither do we control our body weight. And calories, your body just doesn't care about calories, right? So whether you eat 100 calories or 1,000 calories, it makes no difference. It only matters what the hormonal response to those calories are. And that, that's the whole idea. If you take all your calories and you are shuttling them into fat storage, then you have no energy and your body will put you into amenorrhea because the body says, well, I'm not, I don't have energy for menstrual cycles. It's all locked away in fat. So what's the problem? The problem is not your weight. The problem is not even your calories. The problem is how to get at all those stores of energy that are now locked away in body fat. So the, the body can really only exist in two states. So it's either kind of in a fed state or it's in a fasting state. So either energy is going into your body or your body's pulling energy out, right? So when you eat, you want to put energy into your body in storage. When you don't eat, you want to pull energy out. Right now, our body is in a constant state of pushing energy in. And you got to ask yourself, what's the problem? Well, the problem is that the hormone that's responsible for that is insulin. Insulin is too high. So even when you don't eat, when you have a lot of insulin resistance, for example, or when you've had a long-standing history of obesity, you have insulin resistance. Insulin resistance causes your insulin levels to be high. So your body is constantly getting the message to store energy. So when you eat, if you cut down your calories and don't, don't do anything about the insulin resistance or the high insulin levels, your you're going to eat. Those levels are going to be high and you're going to store energy. When you don't eat, your insulin levels stay high, right? That's the, that's the disease. And your body is looking to store energy. So it's not pulling energy out. So therefore, your body starts to shut down because it can't support it. It's trying to put energy in. It can't pull it out. And then it makes you hungry. So you go out and you get a donut or something, right, to put energy in. And this is the whole problem. So you can think of it as those one-way streets, you know, those one-lane bridges where traffic can only go one way, right? Mm -hmm. if, if somebody wants to come the other way, they have to stop. It's the same thing. You can only go one way. I, energy either goes in or goes out. And you have to fix that hormonal problem, which is the insulin and insulin resistance, in order to get at those fat cells to release that energy, right? That's the whole problem, not a t amount of total calories that's irrelevant you have to fix the insulin problem and the insulin resistance problem which is the the main driver of your obesity so how do we how do we switch the traffic <laughs> exactly that's the key so if you look at insulin so there's two parts insulin and insulin resistance so insulin resistance is actually caused by prolonged high insulin levels and this is why people who have been overweight a long time have a lot of trouble losing weight because their insulin resistance has been high. So therefore, it's, it's, it's keeping the insulin levels high and it's very hard to lose weight. 
So if you look at foods that if you want to reduce insulin, well, you can take foods that stimulate insulin a lot and get rid of them, right? So refined carbohydrates, bread, and sugar are the main culprits. So you have to get rid of them. And this is really a, a very simple idea. Like if you take a thousand calories, like three or four brownies, and a thousand calories of say steak and salad, they're nothing alike, right? Mm. But the calorie people insist they're the same. So you could eat a dinner of a plate of brownies or you could eat a dinner of steak and salad every night and it'll be the same because the calories are the same. They're nothing alike. That plate of brownies is going to make you fat. Everybody knows that. And the salad every night is going to make you slender. What's the difference? The difference is that when you eat the all that refined sugar and flour in the brownies, your insulin goes way up. If you keep eating it night after night, you get insulin resistance, which keeps it up, and that tells your body to store fat. When you eat the salad with salmon or salad with olive oil, it can be a lot of calories too, but the insulin doesn't really go up. Therefore, you use the energy, but your insulin levels don't go up, so when you don't eat, your body is able to pull out the energy normally. So that's one thing, is to change your diet to a low-carbohydrate ketogenic diet, and that's why it works for a lot of people. The other thing is that insulin resistance, which is one of the major, major players, and one of the things that we don't talk about a lot because everybody talks about what you should and shouldn't eat, but nobody talks about the meal timing. Insulin resistance depends on two things. One is the high levels, and the second thing is the persistence of those levels. So if you have just one high level and then it goes back to normal, then you're fine. It doesn't really make much difference. But if you have high levels of insulin all the time, then your body becomes resistant to it, which makes your body ramp up the insulin levels even more. So there's two things. So one is you're going to lower the levels by changing your diet. And the other thing is you want to have periods of very low insulin to restore that insulin sensitivity. So think of it this way. If you yell at somebody, they jump, right? But if you keep yelling at them all the time, pretty soon they just tune you out, right? Mm -hmm. So what do you do? You yell louder, right? And it works at first. Then they tune you out again. And that's what's happening to the body, right? They're becoming resistant to the insulin because the insulin's yelling at them to gain weight. Body doesn't really want to gain weight, so it starts resisting it, right? And this is the same story as the boy who cried wolf. If you do it all the time, it just loses its effect. So the insulin is screaming at the body to gain weight. The body doesn't want to gain weight, so it starts resisting it. And then, because you haven't changed your diet and you're eating all the time, you start ramping up your insulin, which screams even louder at your body to gain weight. So after a while, it doesn't even matter what diet you're going to follow. As long as you've got so much insulin resistance, insulin levels stay high, you're still going to gain weight, even if you cut back your calories. So this is a matter of meal timing. So there's two issues with diet is what to eat and when mm. to eat. So we talk all, of, all the time about what to eat, but we never address the question of when to eat because those low insulin levels are going to help break the insulin resistance. Just like for the boy who cried wolf, if you have a period where he doesn't cry wolf, that will reset the sensitivity. And mm. that's what intermittent fasting does. So they work hand in hand the ketogenic diets and the intermittent fasting because they're both trying to do the same thing, but they're attacking different parts of the question. One is attacking what to eat. The other is attacking when to eat. If you only address what to eat and ignore when to eat, you're only going to be 50% successful. So once you start adding in those periods of intermittent fasting, 
then you're fine because you're restoring the sensitivity. Now, it may take a long time. If you've had insulin resistance for 25 years, it's not going to go away in a week and a half, right? It's going to take a long time. But those periods of intermittent fasting help because when your insulin levels drop enough, then you're going to pull energy back out of those fat cells or the glycogen or whatever. So everybody worries about the number of calories when you do intermittent fasting. But think of it this way. We tell people to think of it this way. We tell them, think of it as just eating your own fat, right? Mm -hmm. What's wrong with that? That's exactly what we want to do. So say you fast for five days. What you're doing is you're eating breakfast of body fat, lunch of body fat, dinner of body fat. So great. Your stores of fat have gone down, but you're not suffering in any way. And this is a difference. If you were to simply cut your calories, you can measure the, the basal metabolism drop. We mm. all know that. You drop your calories 30%, it goes, your metabolism goes down 30%. What's interesting about intermittent fasting is that your body metabolism does not drop. So over four days of fasting, the basal metabolic rate has actually gone up by almost 10%. If you do intermittent fasting, uh, so alternate daily fasting, after 20-ish days, they've done measurements, your basal metabolism drops much less than what you do with caloric restriction. And again, if you were to think about it, why? Say you eat 1,000 calories, right? If you eat that spread out throughout the day, you've addressed the question of what to eat but not when to eat. Your body says, I'm only getting 1,000 calories a day, so I need to slow down my metabolism to 1,000 calories a day. So that's what happens, right? You become amenorrheic, you become cold, you, can, you know, your hair falls out, you feel tired, you mm-hmm. feel cranky, right? That's what happens to you. But if you're to do, say, you know, a fast of the full day and then eat a thousand, so you're averaging a thousand calories a day, but you're taking it, you know, two thousand calories at once and no other meals, what's happening is actually you're getting, you know, five hundred calories at breakfast from body fat and another 500 calories from body fat, and then your 1,000 calories a day at dinner. And that's 2,000 calories that you've pulled out, but 1,000 from food and 1,000 from body fat. And that's not what you do when you simply cut your calories and you eat, Mm -hmm. you know, from sunup to sundown. Your body says, well, because you keep shoving food in your mouth, energy can only go in. You can't pull it back out because it's going in. And that's the difference. So, so this is the thing, that there's two questions that you have to answer. And we never talk about the when to eat. And that's the real problem. And that's why these diets are never all that successful. Right, because people are looking at, you know, if you speak to a quote-unquote regular person about fasting, they're like, oh, no, no, I couldn't go that long without eating. And But you're, what you're saying is that that analogy where the road only goes one way, what you're doing is making the road in reverse and then also pairing fasting with that so your body is able to burn your own fuel as well as take in calories or take in energy but be able to use the own energy on your body whereas when the road is the opposite way then it's not going to work because you're insulin resistant and you won't be able to access your stored body fat is that fair to say absolutely and that's the that's the real key is that we've got to remember that obesity is not a total calorie deficit problem. The problem is that it's stored away, those calories are stored away as fat and you can't get at it. Mm -hmm. That's the problem of obesity, right? So the question is, how am I going to get at that stored body fat? Not, 
how am I going to restrict myself some more, right? And that's mm-hmm. where this whole calories in, calories out idea has completely kind of screwed everybody up because people can't get their heads around the fact that, yes, there's a lot of energy there. You can't get to it. You can't Because <laughs> you're broken. It. Yeah, exactly. it's broken. <laughs> that's the whole problem. Right. And, and this is the this is the idea that you have to you have to change it. There's different ways to change mm-hmm. it. But again, it all comes down to insulin. It's not even necessarily carbohydrates. Right. Because you can eat a high carbohydrate diet and still have very low insulin levels. And this is the other thing. Right. It's not only carbohydrates. There's a lot of things that affect insulin levels. So it's the insulin. Remember, insulin, when it's high, you want to store energy. When it's low, you want to pull energy out. So you need to get that insulin level low so that you can start pulling some of that energy out. But it's not simply carbohydrates. So if you look at the difference between unprocessed carbohydrates and refined carbohydrates, there's a huge difference. So on the glycemic index, for example, white bread is super high. But if you look at things like... um, you know, unprocessed carbohydrates, beans and so on, they're very low. Mm. So there's a lot of carbohydrates in beans, for example, but there's not much of an insulin effect. And that's the difference, right? And there's a lot of things that affect it, incretins, proteins, dietary fat, fiber, acid, so vinegars and um, fermented foods, insulin resistance, cortisol. There's a whole lot of things that affect insulin levels rather than simply carbs. So if you understand that, you can understand how some people can be completely vegetarian, for example, and eat a high carbohydrate diet and still be very slender because that's what used to happen 50 years ago. There are lots of people who didn't eat, a, who ate 50, 60% carbohydrates. The Okinawans, the traditional diet was sweet potato. So they were eating a lot of carbohydrates, but their insulin levels were very low. And the um, they were very slender as a result. So it's not necessarily just about carbohydrates, and that's that's what you have to understand is that yes, in in North America, it's mostly due to refined foods, yeah. but it's not necessarily that you have to cut all those out. And that's just kind of trying to understand a little bit deeper about what causes obesity, rather than taking a very simplistic carbs leads to insulin leads to fat. That's only true to a certain extent. There's a lot of other things that can increase or decrease insulin so that you can eat carbs and do very well. And so you mentioned, um, I know that a lot of people will have questions about, okay, but like what actually causes my insulin to be as high as it is? So you mentioned fiber can help uh, lowering or reducing or completely removing those processed carbohydrates can help, but carbohydrates are just one piece of the puzzle. Vinegar, I know like apple cider vinegar, that's what I use and I love that stuff. I totally prescribe to it to help with insulin. Are there other things that you know, a person can do in addition to it sounds like fasting to help lower their insulin. Yeah, I mean, there there's lots of different ways to get to the same goal. Mm-hmm. Things uh, like dairy, for example, sticking to full fat dairy, for example, is, is more important. So there's different ways to do it. And the fasting also is a, a very similar idea. It's low in everything, right? So some people claim that it's just because of the caloric restrictions. It's really to do with the insulin sensitivity. And that's the real key. So if if you restrict the amount, the, the, the time that you eat, they've actually compared two diets with the same number of total weekly calories, but one kind of everyday reduction and one as kind of two days where you have severe reductions and five days of normal. So it's very, very similar to a five to two diet that 
Dr. Mosley uh, prescribed. And what was very interesting was while weight loss was the same, the insulin levels were far lower with the intermittent fasting group and the insulin sensitivity was far better with the intermittent fasting group. And that's really the key determinant of success in the long term. Because in the short term, all diets work pretty well, much the same. So even low-fat diets work in the short term if you restrict calories. It's that long-term long-term adaptation that is uh, very important. The podcast is sponsored by Paleo Valley 100% grass-fed beef sticks, my new favorite gut-friendly clean protein snack. There are tons of new snack options on the market today, but nothing quite like Paleo Valley's grass-fed beef sticks. They are made from 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, which is really rare contains all organic spices, are all free of dyes, and are also carb-free, GMO-free, gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free, and contain zero grams of sugar. But the big reason these beef sticks make me do the happy dance is that they're fermented. Yes, just like fermented vegetables. As a result, each beef stick contains 1 billion naturally occurring gut healing probiotics. They're super convenient, delicious, and great for your gut, so don't miss out. Exclusive to our listeners, Paleo Valley is providing 20% off all orders for a very limited time. You'll also be given first dibs on their brand new, insanely delicious garlic summer sausage and summer sausage flavors just like healthy mini hickory smoked sausages. Get your fermented 100% grass-fed beef sticks for 20% off by going to paleovalley.com forward slash keto. Load up your cart and the discount will be automatically applied. Again, that's paleovalley.com forward slash keto. And so you've mentioned different forms of intermittent fasting, like you you spoke about an intermittent fast where uh, you do like a couple of hours or maybe you eat one day but not the other, or maybe you do a fast of five days. Can you go through some of the examples of the different forms of fasting? Sure. There's actually any number of variations. So fasting typically refers to drinking non-caloric fluids only, but we generally restrict all sweeteners, uh, artificial chemicals, artificial sweeteners, artificial flavors, that kind of thing as well. The other thing is that you can you can change that. So some people use fat during fasting, for example. So this is bulletproof coffee, for example. Mm-hmm. So bulletproof coffee has a lot of calories, right? So the thing is that it's almost all fat with very little protein and very little um, carbohydrates. So the reason it's effective is because dietary fat alone, taken alone, has very little insulin effect. So what you're doing is you're kind of hacking the body almost to get the calories to help you with compliance of the fast, but at the same time stimulating almost no insulin at all. So it's very interesting and a lot of people do very well on it. So, so there are different types. We, for example, in longer fasts will allow bone broth, which has protein and it has calories. So it's not a true fast. And in Dr. Mosley's 5 to 2 diet, he allows 500 calories on a fasting day. So you can do any variation. And as long as you're getting good results, then there's no problem. Once you start going into it, there's several different uh, regimens that are very common. So 16-8 is a very common regimen where you mm-hmm. eat in an eight-hour window. 
so it's it's um for example if you eat from 11 a.m to 7 p.m you will eat all your meals within that time whether you eat two or three meals is up to you but you always have a 16 hour period of fasting and the idea is to give yourself that time to balance the your body being in the fed state and the fasted state and if you think back to the 1950s it's, it's quite interesting because back then people ate three meals a day breakfast lunch dinner and if you grew up then and tried to get a snack your mom would say no you're going to mm -hmm. ruin your dinner now we go to if you go to 2005 the nhanes survey says that americans in general are eating about six times a day so we've gone from three times a day to six times a day. We go breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, dinner, snack. So we're eating all the time. And that's going to keep putting on. So we're constantly keeping our body in a, if the fed state, the insulin high state, and not letting our body kind of pull that energy back out on a daily basis. And in the 50s, they're eating white bread and Oreo cookies, right? So remember, there's no whole wheat bread. There's not even whole wheat pasta or anything like that. And yet there's no obesity because they were still having that everyday period of fasting. And that's okay if you want to maintain weight. So they did maybe 12, 14 hours a day of fasting. But if you want to extend it, you go to to 16 hours. Then you can go up to longer, 20 hours, 24 hours. So another popular one would be to do a 24-hour fast. If you do shorter ones, they tend to be more often. And if you do longer ones, they tend to be less often. So 16-8, uh, you might do most days of the week, kind of six out of seven days kind of thing. If you do a 24-hour fast, it's kind of dinner to dinner or lunch to lunch or breakfast to breakfast. So if you eat dinner at 7 p.m., for example, you skip breakfast and you skip lunch, and then you eat dinner at 7 p.m. So it's a 24-hour fast. And again, you have to think of it as you're letting your body eat a breakfast of body fat, you're eating a lunch of body fat, and then you're eating dinner. So you don't mm -hmm. worry about how many calories you eat. You eat whatever you feel like full, and you try to eat real food, and you try and stick to a low-carbohydrate diet if you're trying to lose weight. And that you might do two to three times a week. Then as you go higher and higher, you can go into 36 hours, for example. So that's the full day. If you eat dinner at 7 p.m., you would skip breakfast, lunch, dinner the whole next day. And then you would go to the breakfast the next the, the day after. So that's 36 hours. Then you can go into longer fasts, so three days, five days, seven days, 14 days, 30 days, really as long as you want. And remember a couple of things. One is that hunger is a problem, of course, but it actually peaks at day two. So people who have supervised a lot of fasts like we have, we've probably done more than anybody else in the world, well over a thousand. It's pretty consistent that people say day two is always the day they go, oh, I'm never going to make it, right? And then what happens is day three, day four, day five, the hunger slowly disappears, which is actually very interesting. And if you measure ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone, you see the same pattern, which is during extended fasting, the ghrelin levels go down. By day six, day seven, people say the hunger completely disappears and they go, oh, I could do this forever. What you've done, of course, is you've lowered the insulin resistance and lowered the insulin levels low enough that your body is just now feeding on body fat. And if you're feeding on body fat, you're not hungry. Why would it be, right? You're getting plenty of sustenance. And that's really what's happening. You're not really uh, cutting down your energy. What you're doing is you're forcing your body through the hormonal changes to flip its energy source from food to stored food because that's all fat is. It's stored 
food energy. If you're going to do these longer ones and do this on a regular basis, we tell people when you're eating, like don't try to restrict your calories, right? If you've just done a fast and then you want to say, oh, I'm going to only eat 500 calories, you really shouldn't try to do that because if you should eat enough until you feel reasonable, right? What always happens, of course, is that the first meal after a fast, everybody eats too much, right? And then you get this big stomach ache. And you do that for about a couple of weeks, and then you realize, okay, I can't eat that much. (laughs) So it it corrects itself. It's not dangerous, but, you know, I've done it. And everybody I know who's done fasting has got those first two or three times. They just got a big stomach ache. I've done it. It was the worst. (laughs) I only did it once because I was like, I'm never (laughs) doing that again. So as a woman, and there are so many women listening, does fasting change for women, especially in reproductive age, especially like a lot of women listening, I am guessing have a lot of hormone dysregulation, like we're talking hypothyroidism, pretty low DHEA, maybe a lot of them have amenorrhea. Are there certain people? people that shouldn't fast or is the protocol different for women? I I think I might understand like why a lot of women have problems with it. And it could be because what I see often in my practice is that women are fasting. So maybe they're doing the 16, eight, or perhaps they're doing like every other day or whatever their strategy is. And then they're also reducing their calories on a constant basis like 800 a thousand and so (laughs) they're not that's not like it's just a hot mess (laughs) yeah that's if if you're trying to mix up caloric restriction that part is a problem and then you try and mix in some intermittent fasting yeah you're going to get into some trouble there so we never try to mix the two if you're fasting you will naturally eat less calories because you won't be that hungry like the whole issue if malnutrition is that People say, well, if you're really skinny, you shouldn't fast. Well, duh. If you are underweight, you shouldn't be fasting, right? I'm talking as a treatment for people who are overweight, want to lose weight, and so on, right? If your body fat is so low that your body mass index is below 18.5, so generally we put a cutoff at around 20. So if your BMI is less than 20, then I don't recommend people fast. That's just common sense. Right. Like you don't need to be a doctor to know that. Right. Or if you're anorexic, oh, well, you shouldn't fast. Well, duh. Mm -hmm. Yes. You should be eating if you're anorexic. Right. This is not the same thing at all. Right. So people take sometimes what I say out of context because it's like you got to have like a bit of a uh, context in what you're doing. If you're 500 pounds, then fasting is okay. If you're 102 pounds and your BMI is like 15. you shouldn't be fasting, right? A lot of these models and stuff, they do it, right? But yeah, they probably shouldn't be doing it, right? Because they're trying to lose that last little bit for whatever they're doing. And this is where it gets a bad name. And I think that's the issue that I see a lot of the times is these women, 30, 40 years old, maybe mid 20s that really don't have much weight to lose, if any, and they think that they do, they're fasting, they're lowering their calories, they're trying to do all these things, and then their body just like, gives out. So I think when it comes to, you know, I've told people, like, you don't need to fast if XYZ, Because when I know for my body, if I get below a certain body fat percentage and it's quote unquote quite high, you know, based on what people would say, but if I get below that, my, my, 
period stops. So for me, I know that, you know, I can't do long periods of fasting and that's just, my body doesn't do well with that. So I think when it comes to the body fat and fasting, maybe is there, you know, once a goal weight is achieved, or perhaps we don't have a lot of weight to lose, but we want to manage our insulin. Is there a way to fast where we're not going to be losing a ton of body fat, but we're going to be helping our insulin levels? Yeah. So shorter fast, generally, you can maintain your caloric intake. So if you do a 20-hour fast for a 16-hour fast, for example, you can generally get all of the calories that you would normally get during the day in a single meal as long as so we still want to stick to relatively low carbohydrate i mean it's not as i said it's not the carbohydrates unprocessed real foods because if you don't have a lot of body fat to lose then you are going to be hungry enough to eat that with fat fasting you mentioned a little bit before i did the bulletproof coffee thing but i found like i would get really really shaky and really hungry after. (laughs) And so I started adding just a touch of carbohydrates in the form of a little bit of nut butter and then a little bit of collagen, just a bit of protein, and it totally went away. So that's how I do my fat fasting. So people were wondering the difference between just pure fat and just a little bit like it's under 10 grams of protein, under three grams of carbs and a bunch of fat. And whether that is different in the body and how that relates to pure no food fasting. I I actually don't care what people do. Whether you want to eat a little bit or again we tend to use bone broth one because it's a traditional sort of a food. Mm. And there's a lot of these uh, nutrients in it that are supposedly very helpful. A lot of traditional uh, societies, all traditional societies use it anyway. So I th- actually think there may be something to that. Like I I've I've heard of people that experience these like crazy spikes after eating like say steak and vegetables with maybe just a little bit of like cut up apple or something and then all of a sudden their blood sugar is really high and they're like what the heck I thought I was managing yeah we don't again we don't worry about that either so there's actually a um, something called the dawn phenomenon and there's a variation of it for fasting so some people will say oh wow I started fasting and blood sugar spiked up to like whatever they say right and it often happens in the morning but it can happen in the afternoon too so what happens during fasting is that your blood glucose tends to drop and you activate the so-called counter-regulatory hormones, and that's uh, noradrenaline, growth hormone, and the sympathetic nervous system. So it's actually a way of activating the body to produce more glucose into the system because there's none coming in through the... um, through the uh, food, right? And if you're a little bit, uh, if you've got a lot of glucose, then it may be a little bit kind of over exuberant, so you get very high glucose levels. But that's in response to the hormonal changes. Those are the counter-regulatory hormones. So the thing I always say is that why would you worry about it? Because if you don't eat and your blood sugar goes way up, where do you think that blood sugar came from? Well, it came from your own body. So mm-hmm. why are you worried about it, right? You'll go back in. Right? It's just that as you're not eating, it's liberating a lot of it because it's trying to feed your system full of glucose. The only reason you worry about it is because you measure it and you can see it. We don't, we don't, we tell people that's all that's happening, right? So what it means though is that you have kind of too much glucose kind of stored away in the body and you do need to do more fasting, not less. So those high glucose numbers 
during fasting or during the dawn period is the same. Uh, you get this also something called physiologic insulin resistance, which is something else that you see sometimes in ketogenic diets, which is that where you have people who are eating a very low carbohydrate diet, so their body is mostly burning fat, and then you eat carbohydrates and your sugar just spikes you know, way the hell up. And they say, wow, it's physiologic insulin resistance. I'm like, no, your body is burning fat. Now you give it glucose and it can't really use it at first, so it stays out in the blood. Eventually, as the insulin goes up, all that glucose goes inside. And what's, mm. what's the problem? Right. So it's, it's kind of understanding blood glucose. You have to understand what's happening and why it's going up. Just because it's up, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes it's normal. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Wow. We covered so much. <laughs> You're amazing. Um, you. It's it's so crazy. I had so many things to ask you. And as I was about to ask you, you just answered the question. It's like you were reading my mind. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. And I know a lot of people will benefit from the information that you've shared. And where can people go to find more from you? So you can go to my blog. It's www.intensivedietarymanagement.com. That's the name of the program we run, the Intensive Dietary Management Program. There's also my book, which is The Obesity Code, which covers a lot about the science of weight loss, which I think is very important for people to understand to get out of this kind of calories mentality. And then the new book coming out is The Complete Guide to Fasting, which covers a lot of specifics of how to fast, what to fast, the variations of fasting, what to look for, what the problems are when they come up. So it's more of a hands-on guide to the fasting as opposed to the obesity code, which touches on it just at the very end because it's more of a science book. Yeah, perfect. Well, I will include all of those three links in the show notes, which you guys can find at healthfulpursuit.com forward slash podcast forward slash E4. And thanks so much for coming on the show today, Jason. Well, thanks for having me. This was great. And that does it for another episode of the Keto Diet Podcast. Thanks for listening in. You can follow me on Instagram by searching Healthful Pursuit, where you'll find daily keto eats and other fun things. And check out all of my keto supportive programs, bundles, guides, and other cool things over at healthfulpursuit.com forward slash shop. And I'll see you next Sunday. Bye.